When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on today's show, Mark Galliotti, the expert on Russia, joins us to discuss his latest book, Putin's Wars, from Chechnya to Ukraine. Hosting today's discussion is writer and foreign correspondent Katie Stallard. She's the author of Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia and North Korea, and is a senior editor for China and Global Affairs at The New Statesman. Here's Katie with more. Hello and welcome to this event with Mark Galliotti. He is one of the world's leading Russia watchers, the head of the Mayak Intelligence Consultancy, as well as an honorary professor at University College London's School of Slavonic and East European Studies and a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Among the many books he has written, and we may need to do another event just about the secrets of Mark Galliotti's productivity, are The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. We need to talk about Putin, how the West gets him wrong, and most recently the book we're going to be talking about today, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. So we are recording this in late January, just after we got the news that Germany, after I think it's fair to say much hand-wringing, will indeed send its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. There is already talk of planned spring offensives from both sides. So as we try to understand where this war is going, I think it's particularly valuable to look back, as you do in this bookmark, at the lessons Vladimir Putin has learned from his wars to date and how they've shaped the Russian military. So I want to start by asking you to set the scene, as you do in the book, to take us back to the wild days of the late 1990s and give us a sense of the state of the military that Putin inherits and the general sense of of chaos and uncertainty that surrounds his rise to power. Sure. Look, it's quite extraordinary, really, when one thinks about the degree to which our understandings back in the late Cold War days of Russian military power were very much shaped by this sense that there was this brutal, thuggishly efficient behemoth that could at any point suddenly roll westwards. Now, maybe once that was to an extent true, but it, it became clear just the extent to which actually it had massively decayed in both the late Soviet times, the late 80s, and then through into the 1990s. And this was a period in which you had troops being withdrawn from Eastern Europe with no barracks or other housing for them. You had troops who were just not being paid. And it's always a very dangerous move to give people guns, but not salaries. Um, And unsurprisingly, in effect, we almost saw banditry emerging in different forms. This was an era in which, for example, the Spetsnaz Special Forces Uh, The brigade that was based near Moscow actually ended up, first of all, moonlighting as mafia hitmen, because this was also the era of the real rise of of uncontrolled organized crime, but then actually using their training facilities to set up precisely a training program 
for would-be mafia hitmen, which on the one level, full marks for entrepreneurialism, but on another level, really a very worrying sign about the sort of decay of the military. And this all became painfully clear with the, the first Chechen war. You know, you had this small, almost, you know, in, in comparison with the whole Russian Federation, fly speck of a little region, the Chechen Republic. Nonetheless, the Chechens, who are absolutely hard as nails, have periodically been rising up against their Russian occupiers and imperial overlords. Stalin had the entire population deported in the middle of World War II. But anyway, so they took the opportunity to once again strive for independence. Boris Yeltsin decided, the president of Russia at the time, decided that this could not be allowed because he was afraid of the whole Russian Federation and all its different constituent elements falling apart, sent in the troops, and the result was an absolute debacle in which essentially this little part of, Chechnya, of, of Russia managed to hold the whole Russian Federation to, at the very least, a, a draw and acquire some degree of autonomy as a result. And it, it, it was a, a crushing blow to, to Russia on so many levels. One, because it showed just how far its own forces had become incompetent, disorganized, demoralized, and criminalized. I mean, most of the weapons the Chechens were using, they had bought off the Russian soldiers they were fighting. It also demonstrated the threat to the whole territorial unity of the Russian Federation. And it was also deeply humiliating to a Russian elite and a Russian population that hadn't really got its head round the idea that it was no longer one of the great global superpowers. So I think for all of those reasons that the first Chechen war in the 1990s was indeed a, a pivotal moment in making people think, no, you know, this is not working. This, this democracy business, which was never really democracy, this, this just clearly is a risk to us all. You include a quote from Putin's inauguration speech on May 7th, 2000, when he says, we must not forget anything. We need to know our history and always remember those who created the Russian state, defending its dignity, made it a great, powerful, mighty state. How important has this idea of defending Russia's dignity been during Putin's first two decades in power? I think it's absolutely central. And I think this is one of the, the many tragedies of Western policymaking towards Russia, in that actually Putin has been telling us what he's about from the very beginning. And we reinterpreted, we ignored or whatever. The thing is, look, for someone like, like Putin, Russia is a great power, full stop. And it's not a great power because it has nuclear weapons or because it stretches across 11 time zones or whatever else. It's a great power because it's Russia. That is its birthright. And it's a birthright that has been demonstrated through how, as far as he's concerned, Russia has in effect saved civilization, sometimes from itself, time and time again. You know, Russia broke Napoleon. Russia broke Hitler. One can question all these assessments, or the, certainly the kind of how, how they're framed. But nonetheless, you know, that, that's what he believes. And so as a result, he feels that Russia has this kind of historic status claim to being a great power, one that the West ignored, one that the West tried to deny. And so it comes to this point that I think Putin himself genuinely believes, even now with his ghastly invasion of Ukraine, genuinely believes that he is on the defensive, that he is trying to protect Russia and its interests from others who would basically deny it that which is its birthright. Whether it's Chechens wanting to break away, whether it's the Georgians not understanding that they're part of Russia's sphere of influence, and then indeed later on the Ukrainians, or whether it's just a West that is malign in its perspectives of, of Russia. So yes, this is, this is absolutely central. It's bringing together the emotions of a man who, as I said, has not really got used to the notion of the end of empire, with a wider sense that Russia has some kind of manifest historic destiny that must not, cannot be denied. So then we have Putin's first war, uh, the second Chechen war, beginning in late 1999, just as he's about to take on the presidency. You described how the first war had ended in really failure and humiliation. Um, what do you see as the most important lessons that Putin learned from the second Chechen war? I think his most important lessons, I mean, in terms of the actual war, this time, the Russians were much more prepared, but they were also even more brutal. And 
part of that was precisely they empowered a local ally, Ramzan Kadyrov and his, his father, um, Ramzan Kadyrov, who is now the current sort of warlord despot of, of Chechnya, to Chechenize the conflict. In other words, to use locals to do as much of the fighting and therefore the dying as, as possible. But at the same time, I think from, from Putin's point of view, what he really did appreciate was, you know, this was a, a nasty, bloody, lengthy war, but nonetheless, it was, from his point of view, a victory. Chechnya is now solidly back within the Russian Federation, albeit at great cost. And I think it demonstrated to him the notion that war fighting is really the heart of being a great power. It's all very well in the modern world, people having these sort of hippy-dippy notions about soft power, about economic connectivity. The European Union likes to call itself a regulatory superpower because it sets the terms for international trade and the like. Now, as far as Putin's concerned, real great power status is dependent upon having and demonstrating military capability. And by doing so in Chechnya, as far as Putin was concerned, he demonstrated, first of all, to any other regions of Russia that might be thinking about uh, trying to renegotiate their relationship with Moscow, that that was a bad idea. Secondly, to neighboring countries, that the bear was back. But also, more, more generally, it, it demonstrated that, as he put it, Russia was being lifted up off its knees. That after a decade of chaos and uh, sort of really a, a sense of Russia not having any kind of, of a mission or a notion... Now it was back. What do you think he took away about the West's response to that war? Interestingly, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say that the West so often has demonstrated that instead of, in the classic adage, speaking softly and carrying a big stick, it has instead remonstrated loudly while at best waving a small twig. The thing about Chechnya is, as far as Putin was concerned, he thought this was an entirely domestic issue. This was Russia's problem, and Russia would deal with it. However, this was also, of course, the time of the global war on terror, that particularly sort of foolish concept. And as far as he was concerned, he felt, look, this is just Russia's front in this global war. He was offering the United States all kinds of assistance in its struggle against terrorism after the 9-11 uh, crisis. And, you know, he thought, well... Presumably, the West is, is going to be similarly supportive of me. The thing was that although, yes, we, we did appreciate the, the problems facing uh, Russia with Chechnya, and although absolutely Chechnya had slid into a much, much more sort of Islamicist, jihad-based nature sort of, of, of its rebellion, which was originally just nationalist, but increasingly got sort of taken over by, by jihadists, but the point is, when we saw the massive and blatant human rights abuses that were taking part in this war, you know, people disappearing, people being swept up into filtration camps, which are really concentration camps by another name, obviously we began to protest and Putin was outraged. He was thinking, look, first of all, what business is this of yours? Secondly, what kind of hypocrites are you? That you expect me to help you in your, in your anti-terrorist struggles, but you're not willing to help me. And thirdly, he then realized that actually there were no meaningful sanctions of any kind. There were some protests. There were some issues at the International Court of Human Rights. But essentially, he got away scot-free. So I think this very much set the pattern of him thinking that we in the West are sanctimonious hypocrites who are willing to endorse brutal actions when it's in their interests, but not when it's in someone else's. But on the other hand, you know, yes, we talk a, a great talk about the international order and human rights and so forth, but you know, we're not actually going to do anything about it. And this is a pattern which unfortunately then obtained through all kind of later events and culminated in him assuming in February of last year that he could invade Ukraine and pretty much get away with it. Didn't work out so well. Well, if we... Look at one of one of the, these these moments when he does really lay down a gauntlet and presume that the West is not going to intervene is the summer of two thousand and eight and the war with Georgia. Now this is a short war that Russia effectively wins, but which reveals very serious shortcomings within the Russian military. You 
document in the book, basic issues such as the secure phone lines not being connected in the general staff's main operations directorate, the possibility that the chief of staff forgot to activate the air force at the same time as the ground forces, the tank platoon that is halted by fighters with grenade launchers because they ran out of ammunition. What is important to understand about what that war revealed to the outside world about the state of the Russian military? Uh, again, it's interesting that um, there's so many ways in which, as ever, we're, we're great with hindsight. What we had was, I mean, this war, look, of course, the Russians were going to win it. Georgia is a again, tiny little country. And that was in part the reason why the Russians decided that Georgia needed to be taught a lesson. It's because they were sure they could use it not just to actually prevent Georgia's at the time, uh, President Saakashvili, who was very, very keen on closer links with NATO, closer links with the West generally. And they, so they wanted to sort of demonstrate to him, no, 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 you must realize that you, like most of the other post-Soviet states, are within our sphere of influence. And if you try and get too independent, we'll punish you and use you as an example to everyone else. So anyway, this was meant to be a, a short, victorious little war. As it was, it was a war that in some ways people can derive all kinds of different meanings from, depending on what they want to see. It's a bit of a kind of Rorschach inkblot test in that respect, is that because it was so quick, for some people, it was, my gosh, look, the Russian army is back, that they're able to, within five days, impose what they wanted on the situation, essentially take these two secessionist parts of Georgia, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and you know, basically force the Georgians to accept that these were now de facto, if not in law, international, uh, independent states, humble the Georgians, but make a very demonstrative point of sort of basically driving half the way to the capital, Tbilisi, and then just stopping and just basically saying, we're fine now. So for some, it was again a sign that, that, that Russia was back. For others, it was a sign actually that Russia still had deep systemic problems within its military, which is absolutely true, as you said. I mean, the, the, the litany of errors, the, the intelligence failures that mean that they, they, they bombed airfields that have been um, not, were no longer used for years and that kind of thing. The case of the, the general who had to borrow a journalist's satellite phone to give his orders because his communications weren't working. All of these things, there's, there's, there's quite a list. For some people then, that became a sign that in fact, Russia didn't need to be worried about so much. Sure, it could take on Georgia, but it couldn't really handle anything more complex, anything more, more systematic. And so the interesting thing is that this actually drives the reform process within Russia, is because for a long time, there had been people within the Russian state who wanted the Russian military to be modernized, realizing that that meant a lot of systemic change. And look, the Russian military is every bit as conservative as most militaries tend to be. And particularly when you're talking about the kind of changes which would mean fewer generals, guess what? The generals are opposed. So it would take some particular example to be able to break their resistance. And Georgia provided that. The defense minister at the time, Serdyukov, who a man was phenomenally unpopular with the generals, but didn't really care, and used this as a way of bulldozing through reform. So in, so, in some ways, I think this is this, you know, the, the ultimate point is that it did certainly provide a salutary lesson to other neighboring countries that Russia had the capacity and the will to use its military force outside its borders. But it didn't really act as enough of a wake-up call in the West, I think, because we focused on the flaws rather than the fact that ultimately flaws notwithstanding, the Russians did achieve what they wanted. And anyway, those very flaws were precisely what was going to drive a reform process at home. What form did that reform process take? Where was the focus in terms of trying to, trying to shift, trying to professionalize the military after that war? Sure. I mean, look, I, I could unfortunately go into full kind of military wonkery mode. And it has to be said, the book itself is written in some ways for both uh, a lay audience that is interested in the sort of the wider context and what's going on, and also the one that is more interested in, yeah, the which tank was adopted when and so forth. So it, it, you know, it, it sometimes dips from, from one to the other. Broadly speaking, these reforms were actually about changing, finally breaking with the old Soviet legacy. Look, the Soviet legacy had been one, again, often I think sort of maligned as, as being some sort of clumsy steamroller, but it was, it was built around the notion that Russia might well be facing a big war, an existential struggle akin to World War II. And therefore, it needed to have a conscript base because it needed to have a base of millions of reservists that it could call up if need be. It, it had structures which were really based around that kind of a conflict, where, where, where you have these sort of huge tank armies brawling in the plains of Europe and such like. What really the, the, the more thoughtful 
Russian military reformers were about, were saying, look, that's actually not the nature of modern war. That's actually not the kind of threat that we face. Because for all the rhetoric about NATO, there was an awareness that NATO was not about to invade Russia. So instead, the need was for forces, excuse me, I'm on the tail end of a cold, um, forces which could fight small but much more um, taxing, shall we say, operations. So instead, it meant, yes, more professionalism, more flexibility, shifting from great big divisions to smaller, more maneuverable brigades, all that kind of thing, and going for quality rather than quantity. And they had some success, it has to be said. They did start recruiting more professional volunteers, so-called kontraktniki. They did start phasing out a lot of their big old clumsy structures and move towards you know, a, a, an army which is more able to kind of fight the kind of modern rapid intervention conflicts that actually is what the West has been fighting. But first of all, part of this reform in classic Russian style was for show rather than substance. You had forces that looked very good when they're marching through Red Square, but actually haven't yet addressed a lot of the kind of the, the systemic issues about lack of initiative within the officer corps, an endemic and horrific culture of bullying within the, the, the ranks called Yidovchina, grandfatherism. You know, these kind of intangibles hadn't really been addressed as well as providing them with nice new uniforms. But secondly, what it meant was they pivoted away from big wars in the run-up to finding themselves fighting a big war in Ukraine. So moving to Crimea then in 2014, and I want to start with just a, a framing question, which is you, you write in the book that you believe there were contingency plans being developed by the Russian general staff for a seizure of Crimea from at least the mid-1990s. Just help us to understand why Crimea was and is so important to Moscow. Yeah, Crimea, again, was pretty much destined to be something of a potential flashpoint. Because here we have this peninsula of land, which in many ways is considered to be um, absolutely crucial for dominating the, the, the Black Sea. It's a peninsula that uh, the Russian Empire conquered. And, I mean, historically, everyone from, from the Scythians onwards can, can lay claim to, to owning it. But it had been part of Russian territory. It had been part of the Russian part of the Soviet Union until just after the death of Stalin in the 1950s, when the Soviet leader Khrushchev transferred it to Ukraine. And frankly, transferred it really just for administrative reasons, because its power and water came from Ukraine. So it just seemed to make more sense to do that. But nonetheless, as far as most Russians are concerned, and obviously Ukrainians might well say otherwise, but as far as Russians are concerned, it is actually historically Russian. It's also the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet, which again is a very kind of politically complex issue. When you had the breakup of the Soviet Union, on the whole, what the understanding was this, that whatever forces were on the territory of each of the successor states would become the possession of that successor state. So, you know, if there was a tank division in Kazakhstan, that became Kazakh. The Black Sea Fleet, though, was an exception because Russia was not willing to just simply sign, or sign away what was one of the most modern and powerful fleets of the Soviet Union. And therefore, a deal was struck whereby the Black Sea Fleet was eventually split, with, with Russia, frankly, gaining the lion's share of that. But also, its bases on Crimea would, be, would remain Russian, just simply leased from Ukraine. And, you know, there, there were, as you'd imagine, there was all kind of haggling over this and times when Ukrainians were saying, you know, we will we'll break this deal and such like. But essentially, what it meant is you actually have a peninsula where most, which most Russians feel is Russian. A population which actually often regarded itself, frankly, as Russian more than Ukrainian and felt that Kiev had neglected it. Again, one can, one can dispute whether it's true or not, but certainly that there's a per pervasive sense that Kiev had not actually looked after Crimea, shall we say, since Ukraine became independent. Many of these people actually are like retired Russian naval officers and their families and the like. And then there's also the presence of these Russian forces and these bases at places like Simferopol. Now, what that meant was, as I said, that the, the, what, crime, what happens to Crimea really matters to Moscow. And at the end of 2013 and the, the beginning of 2014, we had the so-called Revolution of Dignity in Ukraine, this rising against this deeply corrupt regime of President Yanukovych. 
triggered by the fact that he had originally agreed to sign a deal with the European Union, which would see Ukraine very much looking westwards instead of eastwards, and then under Russian pressure, deciding to, to, to revoke that. A movement, you know, arising, a which is entirely understandable, entirely organic, but which Putin and those around him was absolutely morally convinced was instead staged by the West. Essentially, it was the CIA operation to basically steal Ukraine. So in that context, you know, from his point of view, all of a sudden you have a peninsula which is historically Russian, in his view. A peninsula which actually has this sort of crucial military assets and which will control the whole Black Sea area, now beginning to fall into the grip of a regime that is nothing less than a puppet of the CIA. So from his point of view, obviously something had to be done. So if we look at the military operation itself, which in this case was swift, it was remarkably successful. Um, it was led by these Russian soldiers without insignia, the the little green men. I was reporting from Crimea at the time and I came face to face with a lot of these guys and it was patently clear um, to a lot of us and particularly to my Russian colleagues who, who would uh, try and chat to them and realize where their accents were from. These were very clearly Russian soldiers. Um, they had a smattering of these uh, so-called self-defense forces um, with them, but it, it, it was Russian forces surrounding Ukrainian bases, fairly swiftly taking control of the peninsula and then staging their referendum, um, which had obviously no basis in, in international law, in, in March of 2014. Uh, you were in Moscow at the time and you recall your conversation shortly afterwards with a veteran of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, who after one beer is exuberant. He says, they didn't think we could do something like this. We showed them all. But after the third beer, he's started to get more worried and he's asking, but what happens now, though? I fear our leaders may not know where to stop. Uh, you're right, indeed. Uh, how do you see the path from that military operation to the decision to launch the full-scale invasion of Ukraine that we're witnessing now? Yeah, in some ways, it's a classic example of the dangers of being too successful. Almost you get carried along by your own momentum. I, I can't help always having this image of, you know, this sort of classic scene from, from a cartoon in which, you know, the, 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 the cat or whatever is, is chasing its prey doesn't notice, runs out across over a cliff edge and keeps running along until suddenly it notices that there's no ground beneath it. And only when it notices that does it actually fall. And I do feel there's an element of that. The, the, the Crimean operation was actually a textbook success. Uh, it was one that clearly, yes, that they, they had been planning for a long time. Remember, look, the job of militaries is to create contingency plans for almost anything that could happen. You know, no doubt there is a contingency plan for what happens if a flying saucer lands on the White House lawn. You know, it is their job to prepare for whatever stupidities that their, their political masters may demand of them. So there's no particular kind of sinister th message in the fact there was a contingency plan. But what happened was precisely they, they activated it. They used their very best forces. I mean, these so-called little green men. Um, and I must be, I'm always astonished by the, the focus that is often given precisely on this point that they didn't have insignia on as if somehow there was something so new, so revolutionary about special forces not actually being open as to who they are. But anyway, never mind. But yes, I mean, they were able to rely on, on Spetsnaz, special forces, on their new special operations command, which was a sort of an attempt to create something akin to the British SAS or, or their, their American counterparts, um, and, and naval infantry and, 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 and paratroopers, who are, again, cut above your, the regular uh, Russian forces. And look, this was a time, I mean, one, one could not have imagined more propitious times. The Ukrainian state, just after the revolution, was in total disarray. No one really knew, if nothing else, the loyalties of the figures within the chain of command. The so-called Berkut riot police, for example, who had played such a brutal role in trying to suppress the revolution and had then been disbanded. Well, no wonder a whole bunch of them just simply defected to the Russian side. You, know, you, you had all kinds of uncertainties about this. Um, the fact is that this is a peninsula where, as I said, there were already thousands of Russian troops ready to be used. And so in, in this circumstance, the fact that the Russians were able to take Crimea shouldn't really surprise us. But yes, one also has to accept that they, they did it very well. The point is, though, that the lessons to be learned are so, so crucial. Remember, look, Putin, for all the fact that he cannot walk past a tank or a jet without a photo opportunity in the cockpit, 
has absolutely no meaningful military experience. He did the bare minimum officer reserve training when he was at university. When he left and joined the KGB, he used that to be able to basically get out of any further reserve refresher training. So this is a man who's a bit of a military groupie without actually having much sense of what's involved. And I think, again, he drew exaggerated understandings about just how effective the Russian military was based on a very small operation carried out by the very best of Russia's forces in the very ideal situations. So what we saw was with the rise of this kind of strange mix of genuine insurgency and foreign-inspired intervention in the Donbass region in, in southeastern Ukraine, you know, I don't believe Putin was behind that. But nonetheless, you know, as it started and as it emerged, he sort of thought, well, maybe we should get involved. Again, I think he felt much more powerful than he really was. He felt he had much more strategic options than he really had. And he allowed Russia to basically get embroiled in that. And by the summer, you actually had full-scale military intervention in, in the Donbass and an undeclared war being fought there. So again, you know, he had, he had allowed the momentum of the successful Crimean operation to carry him over that cliff edge. And once he was there, he had no, nothing to do but keep running. And so I think this is it. He found himself you know, in a situation where if he had just stopped after Crimea, if he had said, look, this was a special case, we wish the Ukrainians the best with their, their new future, but to be honest, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that, that, that Crimea is, is Russian. Obviously, this would have been illegal under international law. But based on what we actually saw from the response from the West, he would frankly have got away with it. There would have been all kinds of, of complaints and such like, but probably it would have had the same status as, say, the Baltic states in the Soviet Union, which were annexed at the end of World War II. That, look, the maps all had a little asterisk on them saying, but we don't accept that they're Soviet. But in practice, the West accepted de facto that the Baltic states were part of the Soviet Union. I think that's probably what would have happened to Crimea if he had stopped there, but he didn't. He let himself get sucked into the Donbass. As a result, he found himself in a long-running, undeclared, low-intensity, flaring up sometimes to high-intensity conflict um, in, in, in that region of Ukraine, which meant that he could never really kind of let go. He kept sort of trying to work out ways in which he could bend Ukraine to his will. And that, I think, contributed eventually to him deciding to as he would think of it, probably just going you know, to rip the bandage off, send in the troops, which he was absolutely uh, convinced was going to be a very short and triumphant military operation. He had thought that, in effect, he could replicate the Crimean annexation across the whole of Ukraine, a country of more than 40 million people. Militarily insane, but politically tempting. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Final conflict that I want to touch on before we get to that present day war is the intervention in Syria beginning in 2015. How do you see that playing into this sense for Putin that Russia is back, it's a great power again, and its interests need to be taken seriously? Yeah, what we saw in Syria was one of Russia's last remaining allies and indeed client states coming close to, to collapsing. I mean, I think there was a real sense that what was happening in Syria with the rise of a whole variety of different rebel groups and the sort of continuing failure of, of, of the state to control them, 
was that it was going to be a situation a little bit like Afghanistan after the Soviets had withdrawn. When you know you they 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 left a, a pro-Soviet uh, regime, which looked as if it was going to be quite powerful, but once it started to have defeats, you started to have defections, and local commanders and so forth decided that well this is a sinking ship, so we want to jump off it, and that became a, a process that acquired its own momentum. So there was a sense that basically Damascus was going to fall soon. In and of itself, that probably wouldn't have been enough to trigger intervention. But this was also the time in which the United States was actively trying to isolate Russia diplomatically as a result of both Crimea and the Donbass conflict. And I think from, from Putin's point of view, there was a sense, again, remember, this is a man who keeps thinking that he's defending Russia against you know, the, the nasty West. No, you don't get to do that. You don't get to isolate us and lock us off. So what we will do is we will essentially inject ourselves into an area that matters to you. Remember, the Americans are also involved in this conflict, very much concerned about the rise of Islamic State there. So we will inject ourselves into an area that matters to you and force you to come to terms with us. And so I think that was the key political driver behind it. So you had this, this deployment of military force, primarily air power, some mercenaries, some special forces, which, again, surprised everyone because we, they didn't really think, we didn't really think that Russia could launch this kind of out-of-area operation very much something that it hadn't done at any point in its post-Soviet history. And more to the point, sustain it. They actually, sort of, again, one, one has to recognize that on a fairly limited intervention, the Russians were able to do something quite impressive. And then we actually had Putin going, very rarely for him, going to the United Nations General Assembly in New York thereafter. And this incredibly uncomfortable photo opportunity of him with President Obama in which clearly Obama wanted to be anywhere else but there. And from the Russians' point of view, that actually made it all the sweeter. Uh, I remember, again, talking to a, a very sort of hawkish Russian academic who actually had a photo of that. And he had a photo of it because that was the, the thing that he treasured. Obama didn't want to meet Putin, but he had to, and we made him. So again, I think you know, Syria, it did demonstrate that Russia actually had acquired certain niche military capabilities. And as long as it remained essentially quite small-scale interventions, actually the Russian military was able to do a good job. But first of all, that it ended up encouraging Putin's hubris. But secondly, that it was largely going to be driven by the sense of defending Russia against the nasty West. We will be opening up to audience questions shortly, I think in the next seven minutes or so. So a reminder that you can send your questions to us using the ask, quest, using the ask question function um, on your video screen or by tweeting to us at hashtag IQ2. Uh, please include your name if you would like it to be read out. Um, so let's turn now to the present day and let me ask you a very unfair question, um, which is... If we had been talking a year ago today, so late January of 2022, given everything you knew about Putin's past history, his previous wars, would you have or could you have predicted the war that he was about to launch on Ukraine? I mean, obviously, we all really want to, to reinvent our past in this kind of way. No, I'll be honest. At that point, I was, I was thoughtinging it was maybe 30 to 40 percent, no more than that that the odds were against. Because here's the interesting irony. Right up to the point in which Putin's forces crossed the border, Putin was winning. He had assembled this huge military force on Ukraine's borders, but on Russian territory, so that you know, it, it was entirely internationally legal. But under the shadow of Russian guns, investors were frankly flocking out of Ukraine. The Ukrainian economy was in growing crisis, you had a stream of Western visitors coming to Moscow to petition Putin, in effect, not to invade, which is exactly what he wants. He wants that sense of centrality. Again, that's what a great power is. Great power has everyone else coming humbly to, to, to beg it for something. And you actually had certain Western, essentially European countries, already beginning to try and bring pressure to bear on Kiev to make concessions to Moscow in order to avert a war. So, you know, if he'd really been this kind of Machiavellian, three-dimensional geopolitical chess player, we're sometimes told, he would have just let that continue. But 
He was cocky, he was impatient, and he overestimated the capacities of the Russian military to, to achieve what he wanted. Um, but the point is, how did we know? You know I, I had made assumptions based on the fact that I think Putin is a rational actor, I mean, an unpleasant one, but a rational one. But the point is, what this really illustrated was the degree to which rational actors can make deeply stupid decisions based on their own perceptions, what information they are being given. And, and my assumptions, and that, I think, and many others, you know, assumptions about what Putin, how Putin would see the situation was rather different from actually how it turned out to be. What sort of information environment do you think he was in? Where was he getting his information and, and what did the circle look like that was weighing the decision to invade? Yeah, I mean, again, this is, this is what's really become interesting, you know, in, in, as we try and unpick what happened after the event. The degree to which, in many ways, I mean, this is in sort of Greek tragedy terms that there, there is indeed a certain sort of fittingness about this because really it's precisely not just that the early mistakes, early um, victories provoked Putin's mistakes, but that also over the years he has steadily been shrinking the circle of people to whom he listens. And not just shrinking, but shall I say curating, pushing out those people who have alternative perspectives, those people who are willing to actually say something critical. I remember back in, I think it was 2015, talking to a retired Russian intelligence officer, recently retired, who had said, look, you know, we've learned you do not bring bad news to the Tsar's table. In other words, Putin's not interested in hearing people challenging his, his worldview. He just wants confirmation. And people realize this, that actually that's how you get the boss's favor. And remember, the real currency of Russia is not the ruble. It is Putin's favor. So that's how you got it. You basically echo back to him what he wants to hear, not what he needs to hear. And also, look, the people around him, they're all pretty much, I mean, Putin himself is, six, is 70 at the moment. The people around him are basically in the band of, say, 68 to 74 years old. Most of them are ex-KGB. They very much the same generation, the same mindset, the same inability to cope with the end of empire. And I think this is the thing. He, he was surrounded by people like, I mean, his, his, in effect, his national security advisor, Secretary of the Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev, deeply scary and unpleasant man, um, who, you know, who clearly is the, the, the devil on his shoulder, who keeps sort of telling him about how the West is hostile and dangerous and so forth. You had, had people like, um, well, you know, I mean, his, his kind of his main contact in, in Russia, a businessman by the name of Medvedchuk, who also had established a sort of a, a kind of pro-Russia kind of, of a political party, who again was telling him not just that the, exactly the, 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 new, the new government is just a puppet of the Americans, but also that the Ukrainians were, were sick and tired and they were looking forward to the day when the Russians would come and liberate them. You know, all kind of nonsense coming in. And so although there was a lot of really good intelligence being gathered by the Russian political and security establishment, it wasn't getting into that information bubble. No one dared be the one to actually say, Vladimir Vladimirovich, I'm sorry, but you know, you had this vision that basically this is just a case of rolling in, declaring a new regime, and all the Ukrainians will, will, will be happy. That's not the way it's going to be. No one dared say that. And I think this is um, a way in which actually Putinism, the whole system, held within it the seeds of its own destruction. I want to unpack something you touched on earlier in terms of Putin's own background. And you talk in this book about a conversation you had with two Russian army officers who absolutely think Putin is a strong national leader, but they do not appreciate all of the action man photo opportunities and the dressing up in camouflage. And they are not convinced that he understands warfare or indeed Russia's own military doctrine. What role do you think Putin's own military experience or lack thereof has played in the situation that we're now witnessing? I think it's, it's crucial. Look, anyone who has actually been in the military, first of all, is unlikely to be that glib about sending in the troops. You know, if you've actually seen people in your own unit blown apart, if you've had to be at the funerals full of weeping family and, and such like, you take this seriously. Secondly, there's a notion that war is something that can be easily handled. 
that it's not prone to all kinds of uncertainties and so forth. Again, you know, you, you've really got to have experienced it, I think, to, to, to have you know, uh, internalized it fully. Instead, what was Putin's picture of war? It was these sort of big, massed, and very, very heavily choreographed military exercises in which you know, the, the red forces, the Russian forces, always trounce the blue forces, the enemy ones. Um, but precisely because in some ways this is more about military theatricality than, than, than reality. And the final point is this. Although, as I say, Putin is a bit of a military groupie, he's even more a spook groupie. You know, this is, after all, the guy who, when he was still at school, went to the local KGB offices to say, excuse me, how can I join? And I think he had a, this, this deeply unrealistic notion of the degree to which, through all kinds of sneaky subterfuges, Ukraine could be undermined such that you know, it would just take the slightest push for the whole structure to collapse. And again, you know, this is not how generals plan wars. The interesting thing is, again, I will avoid going into the full military wonkery, but there's a whole variety of processes that the military go through when they are about to embark on a major military operation. That the Russians didn't do before the Ukrainian invasion. Um, that, you know, clearly it was because Putin basically dreamed up this war and dreamed up the strategy himself with a handful of hand-picked cronies who, again, don't have military experience and kept even his own generals out of the loop until the very last minute. You know, he was sure that this was going to be basically... I mean, the fact that he calls it a special military operation, in part, that's propaganda. But in part, it's also because that's how he saw this. This was not first and foremost a war. This was actually something that was really more of a sort of spooky operation that the soldiers would take part in. And again, this is very much not actually how proper major military operations can be planned. But again, who was going to tell Putin? You have written, Mark, that Putin likes to compare himself to Peter the Great. But in fact, he now risks looking more like Tsar Nicholas II, who led his country into the First World War and doomed his dynasty. Do you think this could be Putin's last war? Where do you see this heading? Terribly unfair question, I, I acknowledge. No, this is, this is what I'm here for. <laughs> I think, well, look, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain this is going to be Putin's last war. Not least because essentially 20 years of military reform, 20 years of dumping a huge share of national treasure into reforming his military has been burned through in, frankly, the first 20 weeks of the conflict. If one looks with the sort of, you know, not just the, the Western technology that's being provided the Ukrainians, as you said, you know, now we're getting the, the tanks and such like, but also the overall training and expertise, and frankly, the Ukrainians' own you know, very impressive capacity to, to innovate. Ukraine is acquiring a 21st century army, just at the moment when actually Russia is beginning to do some basically only be able to field a 20th century army. It's now fielding an army which is full of mobilized reservists. In other words, people who did their national service some years back and have now, after years in Civvy Street, been brought back to the ranks. Often not very fit, not very disciplined, not very happy to be there. Equipped with kit that has been pulled out, half rusted from stockpiles dating back to the 1980s. So, you know, this, this, this is the situation. It would take at least 10 years, frankly, in my opinion, for Russia to be able to reconstitute its forces after the end of, of this war, whenever it may be. So, yeah, I don't think Putin's going to have another war in him. I don't know if this is going to be the war that brings Putin down. It could. I think that what it's doing is it's creating a, a state which is increasingly brittle. It's still strong, but it lacks so much of the resources, the legitimacy, the money, the the loyalty of the security forces, on which to depend if it gets hit with an unexpected crisis. So, you know, again, I think much like Tsarist Russia, look, for me, Tsarist Russia basically died in 1911, when Prime Minister Stalipin, who was the last figure who had some kind of clear vision for how this aging, dilapidated, creaking empire could be reformed, was killed, possibly with the knowledge, the foreknowledge of Tsar Nicholas II. But from that point, I said, I think it was brain dead. But nonetheless, it still managed to survive another six years, even through the hammer blows of World War I. 
So you know, it, it, it's it's possible for regimes to be pretty much dead, but 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 living. But I think you know the idea of Putinism, the idea that this is actually some kind of a model which is appealing to Russia or indeed to other countries, I think that's gone. So yes, this is going to be Putin's last war. This is the end of Putinism. And it may be the end of Putin. You mentioned the tanks. Um, we have a question from Helen um, on this subject. Are the tanks being sent by the US and Germany to Ukraine likely to be the, quote, provocation that Putin claims they are? And how do they fit into the strategy to end the war? In terms of the provocation, look, this happens every single time any new piece of kit is sent. The, the Russians fulminate that somehow, no, 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 this is crossing a red line and watch out, there's going to be terrible things. And, you know, probably we'll have Putin once again trying to hint that he might turn nuclear or whatever. This is essentially just and precisely an attempt to unnerve us. The fact of the matter is that Russia has does have escalatory options, but they all have massive political and uh, economic price tags for, for Putin. And so on the whole, I, I, I don't think we should take that kind of rhetoric seriously. Especially because, look, tanks have been going to Ukraine for months now. The point is, up to now, it's basically been modernized and reconditioned Soviet-era tanks that the Czechs and then the Poles and, and, and the others have then provided the, the Ukrainians. So yes, you know, the, the fact that these are, are Western-made tanks and they are, on the whole, better tanks will have an impact. But it's not some kind of step change in, in what's going on. And in terms of where, where this takes the war, look, we are heading clearly in spring for both Russian and Ukrainian offensives. The Russian offensive is likely to be fairly tank heavy because that's how the Russians fight. And also because the current overall commander of the operation, General Gerasimov, is a career tank officer. Despite all the, the value of missiles and everything else, you know, one of the best counters to a tank is another tank, and particularly Western tanks that actually have um, you know, very high power uh, main guns, but above all, very good fire control systems that allow them to basically shoot more accurately at longer range while moving, um, will, will really be a, a useful counter for the Ukrainians against the Russian attack. But likewise, look, the Russians have essentially tried to make sure that there are no more easy victories for the Ukrainians. They, they made this amazing sort of gains in the northeast um, from, from Kharkiv in September and October, essentially because they were attacking areas where there, there were very few Russian troops and they were quite scattered. Well, that's not the case now. There's you know, basically much more coherent defenses. They're digging all kinds of you know, trenches and, and the like. And generally, they're trying to do a more professional job of it. So, you know, this is going to be, this risks becoming a very attritional, lasting, not deadlock, but, but nonetheless, you know, sort of a, a slow grinding war. Ukrainians would like to avoid that if possible, not least because their big fear is that the West will lose interest and, and decide to stop supporting them. So having these tanks means that they can try and build you know, one big mechanized brigade of Western tanks supported by Western infantry fighting vehicles and artillery and so forth, which gives them this kind of spearhead that they might use to be able to break through the Russian lines. That, from their point of view, is the only chance of both perhaps bringing the war to an earlier conclusion by showing Putin that ultimately he is going to lose, so he shouldn't be stalling for time, he should make a deal now, but also keeping the West enthused, keeping the West happy, keeping the West be willing to send those billions of dollars, pounds and euros that we are sending every month, not just in terms of military support, but also in propping up the Ukrainian economy. It's a long and complex answer, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is, anyway, this is very much at the heart of the whole kind of vision of victory for the war. Well, relatedly, James asks, do you think the US and NATO countries should be prepared to back Ukraine to reconquer all the territory it has lost since 2014, including Crimea and the Donbass, even at the risk of Russia using nuclear weapons? Um, I'm going to give a very controversial and unpopular pers uh, perspective here is that I am not necessarily convinced that it is in Ukraine's interest to retake the, the Crimea, the peninsula. Um, look, under international law, all this territory is rightfully Ukrainian, no question. And certainly the current formally expressed policy of Kyiv is that every square centimeter of Ukrainian soil must be back under its control. In practice, 
although I think that they, they can and should take back all the other occupied territories, Crimea will be more problematic for several reasons. One is precisely that I think, whether it's true or not, I imagine that Putin believes that this would be politically existential for him. Because let's face it, you know, Russians on the whole don't care about the Donbass. They don't care about Mariupol or whatever. You know, all these other sort of various cities, but they do care about Crimea, as, as, as we've said. And I think, therefore, from his point of view, actually, you know, any kind of escalation, or almost any kind of escalation, might well be justified in order to hold on to Crimea. Secondly, I'm still unconvinced. I mean, obviously, how can we know? Because it's impossible to actually get any kind of real opinion polling in the current circumstances. But I'm still unconvinced that actually a lot of Crimeans would want to be Ukrainians. So in other words, actually, this would end up becoming a, a war of pacification for the Ukrainians, that they would find themselves sucked into you know, what, what could be, a, you know, frankly, a potentially rather brutal and certainly expensive campaign there. I mean, I do, I do know that the uh, very recently and tragically deceased uh, Ukrainian interior minister, Denis Monastirsky, um, you know, he had his qualms about taking back Crimea, precisely because he was thinking that his, his ministry, the police, would be have the primary responsibility for that. And he was worried about what it would do. It would more or less turn the police into an occupying force. So I think for all these reasons, I suspect Crimea is going to turn out to be, in due course, the essential ingredient of any kind of political deal. That sort of the rest, I mean, I don't think there's any question about the rest of the territory, the need for reparations and such like. But it may well be that, in fact, the Ukrainians will, will be willing to make some kind of deal even if it just simply is, look, there has to be a new, genuine, you know, internationally monitored referendum on, you know, in which Crimeans, including Crimeans who have fled, can actually express their views about whether they want to be Russian or Ukrainian or, or something else. But I, I do think ultimately, if I had to guess how this war ends, it's not necessarily with a straightforward military conquest of, of Crimea. But if I can just very briefly on, on the nuclear side of things, because there's a lot of concern about that. Again, I think we have to appreciate the degree to which almost the frequency with which Putin hints about the use of the nuclear weapons is inversely proportionate to the likelihood. There's very little military value to using tactical nuclear weapons in this context. The political risks would be huge. China and India have already made very clear to Putin that for their own reasons, they'll be distinctly unhappy with the breaking of the nuclear taboo. And let's be honest, none of these weapons has been used or tested since before the end of the Soviet Union. So there'll be, it would actually be quite a complex task to basically pull them out of mothballs, recondition them, and then use them. And we will know that if that's happening. I mean, there, there's no question about that. And we will have the chance to uh, put pressure on, 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 on Russia. Let me try to cram one final question into our remaining two minutes, um, which is from Ollie. He says, if neither side achieves a breakthrough and the war becomes a stalemate, Will the point come when the destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure and the cost of supporting Ukraine require the search for a ceasefire? Yeah, I don't think so, because I don't think we're actually going to get a, 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 either a stalemate or the, the, the destruction of the infrastructure to be that serious. The fact of the matter is the Russians are slowly beginning to run out of the kind of precision munitions which they're using against Ukrainian infrastructure. And meanwhile, the Ukrainians who have demonstrated, as I said, both determination as well as ingenuity are finding ways round how that they're fixing these issues much, much more quickly now. So I, I don't think in and of itself that is going to force anyone into a change. So long as we in the West are willing to accept the costs of continuing to support Ukraine, I think actually the Ukrainians are willing to take the costs themselves in terms of blackouts and, and frankly, dead bodies. Well, unfortunately, that is all that we have time for. So let me recommend that for more, you read Mark's really terrific book, uh, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Uh, I would also point you towards his blog and podcast in Moscow's Shadows, um, if you are not already a reader and a listener. For now, let me offer my thanks to Mark Galliotti, to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This 
is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.